It's time for security now. Steve Gibson's here. He's boy, he's got a lot of security news. There was a big Microsoft update, a new Apple update of Java and Oracle too. Uh, but the big story is Flame. Two amazing revelations that might give us some idea about where Flame actually came from. Steve Gibson next with Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 357, recorded June 13th, 2012. Flame on. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssist from Citrix. Take control of your IT world from one simple cloud-based platform. Provide live or unattended support to all your users anywhere. Sign up for your 30-day free trial today. Visit GoToAssist.com and use the promo code SECURITY. And by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to Squarespace.com and use the offer code SECURITYNOW6. And don't forget, they now offer free domain registration with annual plan subscriptions. It's time for Security Now, the show that uh, protects you online. And here's the protector-in-chief, Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation, creative spin right, world's best hard drive, maintenance and recovery utility. What do you uh, call you? It looks like you're wearing a plain black shirt, Steve. Surely there's something written. Born to code. I knew it. Yep. I knew it. Is that a uh, Think Geek t-shirt? No, I had it custom made. <laughs> Born yeah, to code. Th- that one and my the one that says future centenarian. Both of those. <laughs> I do like that. Yeah, I've had I've got got some great comments. I was walking down in Laguna Beach uh, about a couple of weeks ago with Jenny, and some guy said, "Oh, I love your T-shirt." <laughs> Future and most people like just sort of stumble over it. It's like, what the what? hell does that say? Well, how old are you now? Got a lot of syllables. <laughs> Future centenarian. I'm I'm making one of them. Can we sell that in our Twitch store, or something like I'm ketogenic? Are you something like that? <laughs> That'd got, be good. Got your ketones rising. Do you have a Twit store? We do. We just opened With the hoodies one. and the yeah, fezzes? Twit, and the... not fezzes yet. Ah. Unfortunately, some of the fine Twit merchandise like this mug uh, and the fezzes are made <laughs> by third parties. And ah. uh, so the fezzes, you have to go to Fezzorama. I mean, it'd be nice if we get it. But we have a Spreadshirt store, twit.spreadshirt.com, that you can get hoodies <laughs> with the logo and the T-shirts and stuff. We could, we could have a couple of fun ones like Born to Code, Future yeah. Centenarian. I'm in Born. ketosis. Born. <laughs> <laughs> I'm me. in ketosis. Why aren't you? Yeah, I like that. We got to spread the word. Yeah, so, we've actually, I've had so much great feedback. People are, I mean, our listeners are losing multiple tens of pounds. I mean, yeah. decades. You know, we blew it. If we'd been smart, 
But see, we're not really marketing anything. But if we'd been no. smart, we would have had like a page that says how many pounds and like a thermometer and, you know, a giant scale with how much our, our audience has lost, things like that. That would be awesome. Or gained. We could put a gained. I doubt anybody's gained, but we could put a gained just to be fair. Uh, today we have uh, the title of the show is Flame On. In fact, I'm going to add an exclamation mark. I've got one here. Yeah. I think you're talking about Flamer. We are. Um, two major revelations have come out this week, uh, as I was sure would happen. And as I have said the last couple of weeks, we would be learning more about this over time. This just, it takes time to peel this apart, to reverse engineer it, for these guys to look inside. They don't have a source code. They've got the executable code that they have captured and so you know there's just no substitute i mean somewhere certainly with with kaspersky and russia and scattered around the globe there are engineers who are burning the midnight oil figuring out what this thing does how it works and where it came from and we have two as i was writing the the notes for this leo this morning, I was getting goosebumps oh. because of some of what has been discovered this week. It was also a huge week for security stuff. So we've got a whole bunch of stuff to talk about at the top of the show. And then uh, two major bone-chilling, oh really interesting revelations about flame. Holy cow. Yeah. Well, it's a jam-packed episode today of security. Now, I'll tell you what. Um, let me do an ad. So pay some bills, as they used to say in the old days of radio. And, keep uh, us on the air. Please. Keep us on the air. And then uh, and then we'll go, get go to uh, Patch Tuesday, Microsoft Patch Tuesday, which was a big yep. one yesterday. Yep. The show brought to you by speaking, you know, and this is perfect for uh, the people who listen to the show. I bet you a lot of you are in IT or support. Um, and I got to tell you, you know, <laughs> every guy or gal I know in IT has a tool belt. Sometimes it's a, a, a literal tool belt. We always knew the IT guy was coming. What was his name at uh, Tech TV? Because you'd hear his keys jingling. He had, he had a big keychain, and it was on his belt, and it jingled, and you know, here he comes. So sometimes a literal tool belt, but almost always the IT person has a software toolkit that is absolutely critical. In there, I would submit you got to have uh, remote access because you don't always want to have to walk down the hall or across town. Or you know, I think a lot of uh, the best IT people have clients all over. You want to be able to support them remotely. But the, the other thing that would be very critical, I think, in your toolkit is the idea that you could monitor these clients remotely. Keep an eye on the network's responsiveness, uh, hard drive situations, you know, the overall health of your systems so that you could fix them as needed. So I want to talk about a product from Citrix that I've talked about many times before. This product's been around for 10 years, they pioneered remote support, and that's really what they're best known for. Go to assist.com. But they added a new product, and I think, you know, when we talked to them originally about this last fall, and I gave them a lot of input, we hooked them up with Russell Tammany, our IT guy, because uh, he does manage serve support services uh, for, for 855 clients, including us. And um, and so th they had a different name for it. They were going to rebrand and I think our advice was, hey, look, everybody knows and loves go to assist. Stick with it. Stick with it. 
and uh, just say, look, we've added some new features. In fact, if you're a GoToAssist client, you get them for free automatically. You've got remote support, unattended support, up to eight sessions at once, PC and Mac, et cetera, et cetera, even using the iPad for support. But now this monitoring module, now this is sweet. Russell flipped his lid. He'd been paying a lot more for something that wasn't nearly as good. You install the GoToAssist crawler on your client's network. It detects everything, hardware and software, all the network devices. You set up your custom dashboard, stats, track key metrics like CPU, load averages, memory, disk utilization, network performance, buffer bloat. Then you can have alerts, instant messenger, text messages, email to let you know if there's a problem. You set a threshold, uh, disk space below 5%, hey, let me know. And then you fix the problem before it is a problem. And everybody who does support knows the best way to, to keep your systems humming is to be proactive. These proactive monitoring is really sweet. You've got to try it right now. Go to assist.com. Here's a 30-day offer. Try it for free. By the way, this is this is an amazing deal. For 660 bucks a year, what does that work out to? Or you could do the the the, the $70 monthly plan. You get all of this. All of this. Uh really fantastic. Actually, the, the, you could pay for it separate if you want just remote or just monitoring. The two together is 158 a month. But 30 months, 30 days free right now. So that $158 month is yours for free when you visit gotoassist.com. Click the Try It Free button. You'll be able to try the remote monitoring and the remote support. And I want you to really try it out. Use our offer code SECURITY. I'm sorry, promo code SECURITY. So that you'll uh, give us credit because we want to make sure Steve gets credit for this. Go to assist.com, click the try it free button, click the promo code link, add security, and 30 days absolutely free. You get the full version of Go to Assist, Go to assist including 24-7 customer support for you. Mac or PC, iPad. This is so slick. Go to assist.com. Give it a try. You really must try it today. Hey, I forgot to ask you, did you see Prometheus? I did not, only because I want to wait a little bit longer for the theaters to cool off. Um, so I'm going to go Monday, and we can talk about it next Wednesday. Um, I won't yeah, say anything. I've, I did see it. Yep. There was not a, okay. It was not a crowd. There was no crowd. Interesting. Yeah, that oh, surprised okay. me. I was ready. I, went, uh, I bought tickets two hours early. It went 45 minutes early. Sat in the front row. The theater didn't even fill up on a Saturday night. Whoa, on a Saturday on night. A sat I don't know if that's Petaluma yeah. or what. Did not see it. I'm looking forward to it. I know you were really excited about it. So, Patch Tuesday. Did you see that? <laughs> Playing in theaters <laughs> I worldwide. I saw that coming. Yes. So, um, Microsoft Patch Tuesday was yesterday. And the most used operating system in Iran and the Middle East uh, got patches for 26 known security flaws. Say uh, again, 26? 26 known security flaws. Uh, Brian Krebs re refers to them as patch bundles, which I like because <laughs> the, way they, the way Microsoft does them is they'll be like, a, a, you know, like they'll fix one file, some DLL, and it had three problems in it. Uh, so 
it's three vulnerabilities but one patch. Got it. So there were, in this case, seven patch bundles uh, covering 26 known flaws. Half of them, 13, uh, were in IE. So uh, those were important. Microsoft uh, announced and fixed all at once a critical flaw in their RDP protocol, the remote desktop protocol. Um, and also they've got a, a, a problem that they acknowledged, which they have not fixed, but I just tweeted it because it's, it's critical. Um, so if you, so let's see, uh, I don't see a link in front of me. Oh yeah. There, there's a MS fix it, one of the quick fix it buttons. And that's support.microsoft.com slash KB slash two seven one nine six one five. So the story here is this is again this is not fixed with yesterday's Patch Tuesday because Google found this being exploited in the wild. So it was a zero day exploit. It is under active exploitation now. It involves Microsoft's XML core services, all versions three, four, and five across all Windows platforms and Office 2003 and 2007. Uh, again, I love, uh, I, I actually, I can turn this into an acronym. Brian Krebs refers to it as browse and get owned. So I thought, <laughs> ooh, bago, B-A-G-O. <laughs> bago. Browse and get owned. And this is worse, though, because uh, because Office is involved, this is also being used in targeted attacks simply by mailing people Office documents. So there's a, it's an uninitialized memory vulnerability. Uh, Microsoft wrote, the vulnerability exists when MSXML attempts to access an object in memory that has not been initialized, which may corrupt memory in such a way that an attacker could execute arbitrary code in the context of the logged-on user, which is Microsoft's, you know, traditional backpedaling way of saying, bago, <laughs> browse and get owned. <laughs> you know, it's not like it could and it might and it on, you know, with the moon is in the correct phase. No, this happens. Bago. So, so bago, you, you browse <laughs> somewhere and that's it. Uh, you're in that's the terrible. It's very bad. So uh, thus I tweeted it. Just You can go to just twitter.com slash SGGRC. You'll see a link that I sent out this morning to this fix. Everybody who's listening, who's using Windows, should do this because this will fix it in the meantime. I'm sure Microsoft will nail this by next month. But, you know, this is not something you want hanging out there. You know, Google detected that it was being used and... Um, and locked it down. So That's no doubt they, uh, they've got some, you know, their web crawlers crawled some infected pages and said, ah, what's this? So wow. it's important. Also on the Microsoft, you know, Microsoft's been very busy because there's been a lot of upshot from what's happened with the flame worm. I mean, they got really caught off guard. And, you know, last week I said, eh, it wasn't clear to me whether there might have been some sort of, plausible deniability here. It just sort of seemed, from what we knew at the time, a little suspicious to me that that there could be this 
crossover of certificate signing. Well, I no longer believe that due to what I will be talking about later in this podcast today, because we now understand much more about how the fraudulent certificate was created that was used to sign this this malicious flame code and it and this is why I got chills so this wasn't microsoft sort of you know wink wink nod nod to the nsa microsoft i'm sure is very unhappy so mm. they have updated immediately a bunch of infrastructure things uh under windows vista and 7 um they are updating their uh their os's certificate update tool which to automate the process that used to be manual only of disallowing certificates uh, that is putting certificates in the untrusted uh status list um they said the new certificate update tool will rely on a, quote, disallowed certificate trust list maintained by Microsoft. The tool will check the list daily, moving certificates found on the list into the untrusted store. In the past, moving certificates to untrusted status required manually updating them. So... So this is Microsoft being proactive, saying we're going to have every Windows Vista and 7 box on the planet Mm. check in daily Mm. so that we're able to, if this ever happens again, we're able to be much more proactive in instantly distrusting those certificates. So that's a cool, nice step forward. Um, They also said that they are giving advanced warning. And this is something I'm surprised but very pleased about. They're giving advanced warning of an update to how Windows manages certificates that will blanket invalidate certificates that don't have adequate security. They said certificates with RSA encryption keys shorter than 1024 bits will automatically be marked invalid. Once this key length update is released, all such certificates will be treated as invalid even if they are currently valid and signed by a trusted certificate authority. That's one way to do it. That's big. You know, there are, you know, 768 bits. eh, It's not really strong, but it's, you know, it's pretty strong. 512, and not so much. But this isn't so much about the strength of the bits as an opportunity to kind of invalidate a bunch of certificates. Yeah. yeah? And older and ones. Exactly. So, you know, really since certificates are always expiring, we know that they don't they have a year or two or three life, although it's possible for individuals to create longer living certificates if they want. You know, I'm using uh certs from my VPN that are, you know, I use really ridiculously long uh bit counts but i gave them a long life so i'm not you know they're not i'm not like traveling and then having my cert expire yeah, on me which right. would be a problem um so um this is a good thing that they're doing still it's surprising because this is the kind of thing that will catch some people oh, yeah. unawares who aren't paying attention and suddenly something will break that you know was working 
before they did this. But it's all, you know, this is the nature of, of staying ahead of the moving target of security, which we'll be talking about here later, because, you know, this MD5, which is, is increasingly insecure as problems have been found with it. And it was MD5 that Microsoft only stopped using last year. And that was the vulnerability that allowed the search to get made for for a flame. But also, in st- still in reacting to flame, Microsoft is updating Windows Update. Um, they said they're, they have a hardened Windows Update infrastructure so that the Windows Update client, that is the, the part running in our machines, will only now trust files signed by a new certificate that is used solely to protect updates to the Windows Update client, which, again, this is them reacting to the fact that the Windows Update client had been unnecessarily permissive. As we know from what I said last week, it was essentially accepting um, code that was signed with a sort of a generic, it was in the trust chain with heredity from uh, Microsoft uh, terminal services. And, you know, there was no reason for Windows Update client to be so permissive. Well, they've locked that down. They're saying, nope, we're just, you know, it's, you know, there's no reason it was that way. Essentially, this is Microsoft sort of maybe overly trusting the whole you know, public key infrastructure, the PKI system, just saying, well, you know, our route is going to be secure. So, you know, no one's going to get bad certificates. Well, someone did. And had this been in place before, this would have excluded the the particular solution that was found that allowed Flame to get these certs. Furthermore, get this, Leo. Oh, boy. <laughs> they are strengthening their communications channel, no more proxying of SSL traffic. Hmm. They ha- they were allowing an enterprise or, for example, educational institutions, we've talked about often, that have their own SSL certs and proxy traffic on behalf of their, of the inter, I mean, intranet. Um, the idea being that you would, that a Windows client running inside a, a corporate environment or an educational institution would would in, in initiating an SSL or you know HTTPS connection would have a cert from a proxy on the network border which it would negotiate with that would then decrypt at that stage and then allow and, and then that proxy would es- establish a connection in this case to Windows Update, Microsoft is saying we're not going to let that happen any longer. We need to have a non, a non, um, uh, uh, a non-inspected uh, pass-through. So they're saying that they're they're going to no longer allow proxying of SSL traffic. Enterprises and educational institutions who connect through a network proxy will need to create pass-through exceptions so that Windows Update traffic is tunneled without inspection. And, of course, again, they're doing this to strengthen it. They're saying, you know, you're connecting with us. You don't get to look inside of our tunnel. Hmm. 
like, okay. Because, of course, these are all things. What side effects are those going to have? Is that going to have? Do people, what do people in business probably rely on that, right? Yeah, although businesses are are normally pulling their updates separately already. That is, the clients are not directly connected to Microsoft. You know, they're they're, they're using a um, an enterprise update facility so that IT is able to look at everything and, you know, make sure it doesn't break things within the enterprise. And then the, then, then the enterprise deploys these updates into their um, internet, you know, or, or intranet inside of their, their border. So, but, you know, for for like schools, schools are not doing that. And this will break Windows Update until the schools add this proxying exception. So again, I these are these are serious infrastructure changes. But my as I said, all this indicates to me Microsoft is not happy. They, you know, they they are not happy that that their system got abused in this fashion. One of the Yeah, I wouldn't be. I mean that's yeah. really about as bad as you can get. Yeah, one of the further indications that this was no, you know, wink right. and a nod. Right. They didn't agree to this one. Yeah. Uh uh-uh. uh. No. And that makes sense. That would be such a mistake to, to agree to that. Uh would. Yeah. Would. You could see the horror. So we have an amazing flaw that came to light in MySQL. Uh, you know the my my SQL server. Um, uh, H. D. Moore, who's our famous uh, original originator of the Metasploit framework, um, explained in his posting. He said on Saturday afternoon, uh, Sergey Glabuchik posted to the OSS security mailing list about a recently patched security flaw. And it says a, a CVE number of 2012, of course, this month or this year, uh, dash 2122. In the MySQL and MariaDB database servers, this flaw was rooted in an, uh, this is a really interesting mistake, which I think our listeners are going to get a kick out of. You will too, Leo. This flaw was rooted in an assumption that the mem compare memcmp memcomp function would always return a value within the range oh, always a mistake uh-huh. <laughs> always is a bad word <laughs> now now hd wrote minus 127 to 127 mm-hmm. and he says signed character but actually assembly language programmers know it's minus 128 to 127. You know, you've got to be careful with those rounding errors. Right. Uh, but still, he says, so what What he's saying is that the mem compare function would always return a value within that range on some platforms and with certain optimizations enabled, this routine can return values outside of this range eventually causing the code that compares a hashed password to sometimes return true even when the wrong password is specified. Since the authentication (laughs) Uh authentication protocol generates a different hash each time this comparison is done, there is a 1 in 256 chance that any, he has in all caps, 
password would be accepted for authentication. Any all caps password, regardless, would be accepted. Um, <laughs> Jeez Louise. So, so he says, in short, if you try to authenticate to a MySQL server affected by this flaw, there is a chance it will accept your password even if the wrong one was supplied. The following one-liner in Bash, and he has a little one-line Bash script, will provide access to an affected MySQL server as the root user account without actually knowing the password. Wow, that's not good. This evening, Jonathan Cran, CTO of Pwn Express and Metasploit <laughs> contributor. <laughs> yes, it's the Pony. <laughs> I, actually, I'm sorry, it's Pony. P-W-N-I-E, the Pony Express wow. and Metasploit contributor committed a threaded brute force module that abuses the authenticate call, they're calling an authentication bypass flaw to automatically dump the MySQL password database. Okay, so get this. It exploits the flaw to dump the database. Now you got everything. This ensures that even after Oh, they can't fix the authentic- it. Right. Even <laughs> after the authentication bypass vulnerability has been fixed. You should still be able to access the database remotely using the cracked password hashes obtained before the fix was applied. Pulling from resources of a personal side project of mine, says HD, I was able to derive some statistics about the real-world impact of this vulnerability. This project managed to find and gather the initial handshake for approximately 1.74 million MySQL servers oh. across the Internet at large. Oh, horrendous. This statistic only includes MySQL instances that were on hosts publicly exposed to the Internet and not bound to local host. So these are... I mean, again, the idea that any clown would have their SQL server answering random queries from the Internet is like, okay, just lock them up now. Anyway, um, so let's dig into this a little deeper because this is interesting. The memcompare function is a standard C function. I just I put MEMCMP into Google. The first link was www.c++.com slash reference slash C library slash C string slash memcomp, which is the standard C string memory comparison function. Right. Under description, it says compare two blocks of memory. Compares the first num bytes of the block of memory pointed to by pointer one to the first num bytes pointed to by pointer two, returning zero if they all match or a value different from zero, representing which is greater if they do not. It takes three parameters, pointer one, which is a pointer to the first block of memory, pointer two, pointer to the second block of memory, and num is the number of bytes to be compared. 
and it says under return value, returns an integral value indicating the relationship between the content of the memory blocks. A zero value indicates that the contents of both memory blocks are equal. A value greater than zero indicates that the first byte that does not match in both memory blocks has a greater value in pointer one than in pointer two, as if evaluated as an unsigned care value, an unsigned character value. A value less than zero indicates the opposite. Now, if you were to compare two blocks of memory, in this case, we're comparing two hashes. We're comparing the stored database, the, the stored password hash to a hash made when the user entered their guess. So we've got two blocks of memory. The normal way this would operate is you do a byte-by-byte march along both of these blocks of memory of length num until and and you would you would essentially you'd subtract one you'd subtract one byte from the other and if you get zero that means they're identical so you go to the next pair of bytes the next byte in each of these two memory blocks you subtract one from the other if you get zero you continue you keep so you keep going until either you don't get zero as a result of a subtraction of the two bytes or you finish the num number of comparisons. So what you'll always end up with is a one byte value that is either zero if you got all the way through, meaning all of the bytes in these two blocks were identical and the hashes match, or you'll end up with this, this one byte that won't be zero, and the, the direction in which it's not zero is which one uh, or the other was greater. So, And that would be useful, for example, if you were comparing alphabetic strings and you want to do a sort, an alphabetic sort. You'd like to know, you know if, these are, if the two strings are different and also which one is alphabetically la- larger or smaller than the other. But when he said, depending upon what optimizations were applied. Now, the byte-by-byte comparison I just suggested is, is robust and reliable. But there would be a great tendency to speed it up. And, on, and in the list of, of vulnerable OSs, the 64-bit OSs seem to be rep- like disproportionately represented. That the the great temptation would be to compare eight bytes at once. That is, if num is greater than eight, then, for example, if it's nine, then you know, or well, if it's eight or greater, so then you the temptation would be to do a 64-bit, that is an 8-byte comparison. Instead of doing 8 single-byte comparisons, do one 8-byte comparison. The problem is that if you, 
If you do that, and notice that hashes are often multiples of eight bytes long, so they're going to finish on an, that, that if you compare 64 bits at a time, they're going to finish on an, on a, at an even 64-bit boundary. It would be very possible for seven of those bytes to be completely wrong, but the final bytes to be the same, which means the least significant byte of the subtraction could be zero, even though the rest of them are not. So it is a classic coding error to, to not check the entire value's zeroness, but to only check the least significant byte. And because the function is cast to return a signed byte, all of the most the more significant data gets discarded. And this thing just returns the last byte. So you could have, so the chances are one in 256 that you're going to end up with a zero final byte, even if the other seven bytes are non-zero and you wouldn't know it. The function would ignore those more significant bytes, only return the least significant one, and... Oops. Uh, so, oops. oops. So what we have is... And this, by the way, this library routine is is all over the place. I mean, this is... Oh, it's a fundamental... Fundamental. Root, 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 exactly. It's very, very uh, key. So here's an instance where a security vulnerability was found, but this probably represents a bad bug in code all over the place, which is using this optimization in order to jump through the buffers, uh, uh, jump through the buffers eight bytes at a time if they're not looking at the entire, the entire size of the final eight byte by eight byte subtraction. And, or mo comparison. and most people are going to use memcomp. Uh, yeah, because it's a library routine. It's it's stood the test of time, uh huh. And then it got broken. <laughs> Oops. This is the way. I mean, this is this is why computers have bugs. Yeah, it's like little tiny but things you, like this. You hate to see you a just, bug in a in a library routine, especially a very commonly used library routine, because uh -huh. that means we don't know how widespread this could be. Yeah, and I should just say, I'm just conjecturing. I wanted to take our listeners through a how this could have happened. I don't. I didn't look at the code. I don't. Right. I didn't. No, that makes sense. I, yep. Yep. Yeah. It's you know. And this is uh, in C plus plus. So it's be anything that's written in C plus plus. Potentially. Well, or just C. I, I think C has the same. Actually, you're right. I don't know if the same bug exists though. It's a C yeah, plus I just, plus library, I just picked, right? Ah, good point. Okay, so we did talk last week about LinkedIn. And we, uh, you know, and, and the, the, what is it, 65 million or six, no, 6.5 million. Yeah, one-tenth of their users. Were, uh, had passwords leaked. Um, I was very pleased that LastPass um, uh, got themselves involved because I, just, I like LastPass so much. They've done such a great job. Our friend Joe Segrist blogged. He said LinkedIn was hacked. Confirmed by LinkedIn on 6-6-2012. Um, LinkedIn has updated their blog indicating that there was a breach. And several LastPass staff members who used unique passwords for LinkedIn only, and you can imagine anyone working for LastPass is going to have one of those wacky 
you know, LastPass derived, fully pseudo-randomized passwords. They said several LastPass staff members who use unique passwords for LinkedIn only, as well as numerous individuals not associated with LastPass, have confirmed that LinkedIn's database has indeed been hacked. Meaning, as we talked about last week, they, you know, put in their password into a hash, hashed it, and found it in the database. So Joe wrote, if you have a LinkedIn account, we strongly suggest that you immediately, A, change your LinkedIn password and check if you have reused your LinkedIn password on any other websites. And if so, change those passwords too. And the question was, was my LinkedIn password hacked? So they created a page, very nice, simple page, lastpass.com slash LinkedIn, where they offer the ability to check your password, against, your LinkedIn password against the, the master database that was leaked. So they've made this simple to do. And, of course, I trust LastPass not to do anything wrong. Now, you don't have to trust them because the first thing you should do is change your LinkedIn password. Then test your old one there. But since we've talked, eHarmony also lost 1.5 million unsalted MD5 passwords. So lastpass.com slash eHarmony will do the same thing there. And last.fm also updated their blog indicating there was a breach and have confirmed that they are forcing password changes because the entire password database has been floating around the internet for years it now turns out huh. so what lastpass.com last <laughs> oh, last fm so there's three pages at LastPass, LinkedIn, eHarmony, and LastFM. Any page at which you can submit the appropriate password and LastPass will hash it on your browser. They're not getting anything but the hash. And then check it against each of those three leaked databases, which they have collected and are maintaining for us. So... Thank you, Joe and company, for that nice service. And I wanted to let our listeners know they're somewhere trustworthy. They can go to have that their passwords checked. But, of course, always change yours first and give your old one to uh, the site just for prudence sake. And last week we were talking about, uh, in the LinkedIn context, we were talking about um, the need for salt. And I got a couple tweets that, made me feel like people believed that I believed that salting was all that was necessary. And although we've covered this before, I thought it's worth reminding people that that's really not all that's necessary. For anyone implementing a password database, there's now a, a very well-known, well-understood best practices. Um we 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 know we need to salt but salting is not enough because hardware exists which if the 
Salt is known. It's still possible, even though you wouldn't have a rainbow table. A rainbow table is basically a, a pre-computation table for a hash, which could be and has been for the popular hashes, MD5 and SHA1, you know, unsalted, have been created to allow a password to immediately be looked up from its hash. So given a hash, you could find a password, not necessarily the password, but it doesn't have to be the password, just a password that will hash to the same thing, which would allow a bad guy to log in and impersonate you. If you salt, that doesn't work. It immediately busts any pre-computation table. But the problem is pre-computation tables are a decade old. Now we've got, you know, walls of PlayStation 3s, We've got field programmable gate arrays. We've got, you know, the NSA building, you know, secret facilities in Utah. We've got all kinds of things happening that, that are specifically designed to crack hashes, whether they're salted or not. And, and so, you know, if the salt is known, then you can still apply a, although you can't pre-compute, you can now compute on the fly because, sadly, these hashes were designed for efficiency. MD5 and SHA1 were designed back in, in the early 90s when computers were two decades slower than they are now. And so they were designed for speed when that, when that was a, a, a priority. So what that means is that they are parale parallelizable and pipelineable, meaning that they, they can be implemented to be extremely fast in hardware. You can either have, you know, tens of thousands of them running in parallel at once, simultaneously testing 10,000 different passwords, or if it's pipelineable, you, you can have 10,000 passwords moving through a pipeline coming out the other end to be tested. So this makes them very fast. So consequently, you want to use something that we talked about before, a PKDF function, a password-based key derivation, WPA that was designed more recently and much more strongly famously does use a, a password-based key derivation function. The idea being that you are you use iterations of a salted hash where you take the output of it, put it, you put it back in, you add the salt, you hash it again, take the output, add the salt, hash it again, and you do that some number of times. WPA uses 4,096 iterations. iOS 3 used 2,000 for its security, and iOS version 4 increased that by a factor of 5 to 10,000. So, so this is all... You know, this is all part of what you need to do. Now, you, I would say that best practice, we talked about not storing the, the in, in a best practice uh, situation, not storing the salt with the database. Well, you, what you really want to do in, to make the strongest system you can is you, you custom salt every account. So when somebody is, is creating their password, 
you generate a pseudo-random salt for that user. You also have a what I would call a sequestered system-wide salt, which is not stored with the database. So the per-user salt means, which does need to be stored with the database, that makes each user's hash custom to them. The sequestered system-wide salt, which is not stored with the database, means that if only your database is compromised, they still don't get that. But then, once you've got these two salts, a a per-user salt and a per-system salt, then you apply password-based key derivation, you know, whatever, uh, 10,000. So the idea there is that you are slowing down the process of processing this hash in such a fashion that 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 even guys with really fast GPUs and and hardwares are slowed. So so that's that's best practice for hash storing today. Now, the next generation, I was glad to see that uh the um uh, Colin Percival is the guy behind Tarsnap. And I've talked about Tarsnap. This is the Linux-based cloud storage system that is extremely secure. Um, he's done some of the work on the so-called memory hard functions. The problem with the other problem with MD5 and SHA1 in in having been designed for speed is that they don't require much memory. And if you don't require much memory, you can you can make them much more um, uh, parallelizable because essentially the 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 number of these that that you know the NSA can create is a function of the die size. And so if you you just build yourself an MD5 engine or an SHA1 engine, the smaller it is the more of them they can put on on a chip and the faster their overall processing is going to be. So what you want is a an extremely memory-hungry algorithm. That is an algorithm that cannot be run in parallel. It's parallel hostile. It cannot be pipelined. It's pipeline hostile. And it uses, it, it has to have a huge amount of memory. What that means is that it would just be impractical to create chips. The chip would have to be big because every single instance would have to have a big plot of land allocated to to ROM or RAM in just by its very nature and probably RAM. And the algorithm is going to use it in such a fashion that the whole chunk of RAM is being churned in some fashion. It's going to be very slow. There's just no way to make that better. So, you know, we're learning a lot from all of these attacks about how to create really robust anti-password cracking technology. Of course, it doesn't help when major sites just use an unsalted MD5 hash because, you know, it's just that's just no longer secure against these kinds of attacks. So we know how to do it well. I'm glad that the that they we're seeing high profile breaches like this because it's got to it's got to bring 
um, management's attention to like, you know, asking the question of their programmers. Hey, you know, we're not using an as unsalted MD5, even if, you know, the guy in the suit doesn't know what that means. The programmers can say, uh, we'll get back to you on that <laughs> and then, uh, and find out whether they are or not. Interesting. I did talk last week with some excitement about how a Microsoft's IE10 was going to be getting the do not track header enabled by default. <clears throat> they well, changed their last, mind. No. <laughs> they didn't last a week, Leo. A week, a week. Actually, they didn't change their mind. Their mind was changed for them. Correct. Um, the industry, the advertising industry had a meltdown and laid it on Microsoft's doorstep. Um, it turns out, though, that, I mean, and this is, the, you know, there, we, we need... We need agreement from all the players. So what the, what the advertising industry reminded Microsoft of was the fact that the, the do not track spec, which I really like because it's got some great guys behind it. Uh, Peter uh, Eckersley from the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Tom Lowenthal from Mozilla, and Jonathan Mayer, who we've spoken of many times at Stanford, are all privacy advocates. And, you know, they're the editors of the W3C's working paper for the standardization of DNT. This is going to get W3C standardization. However, the way this has been written, and this is a compromise I can live with, um, explicit consent is required. So in this W3C standard, it will say that um, uh, an ordinary user agent, meaning a browser, must not send a tracking preference signal, that is any tracking, track, tracking preference signal, without a user's explicit consent. Example, the user agent's privacy preferences pane includes controls for configuring the, tra the tracking preference signal. Or, on first run, the user agent prompts the user to configure the tracking preference signal. But, that says, it just can't be on by default. And so, essentially, what was said was, that if Microsoft did have it on by default in IE10, that would inherently violate the standard and free the advertisers from paying attention to it because it was a non-standard header as Microsoft had implemented it. So this gives you a sense for, you know, the, the games that are being played. On the other hand... We're talking about having the FTC enforcing this once this becomes a W3C standard. So this is all good news. This is, you know, what, what, what we predicted when this first surfaced probably more than a year ago. I would say, yes, 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 that's, you know, this is a good thing. And, you know, it's, it has taken a long time. These things do, but we're, we're making some progress. And Leo, when you turned your Mac on yes. before we began recording the Quite show. a few little updates there. Yep. 
Uh, we did have across the board from Oracle and Apple um, an update to Java. Um, I found mine this morning when I unblanked my screen. Uh, I'm still using version 6 of Java. So I received update number 33. People who have moved to 7, you know, both are parallel tracks at this point from Oracle. Um, version 7 being newer has its update number 5. Uh, so those are available. And in Oracle's fixes, Brian Krebs noted that Oracle patched 14 security flaws, only of 11 of which were patched by Apple. So he didn't know and I don't know why. You know, either Apple didn't think they were important or Apple's implementation of Java, uh, you know, they may have been Windows-only things, so they don't affect Apple at all. You know, Apple has is de-emphasizing Java, no longer ships it. Uh, but for those systems that have it, and many do because many need it, um, they are they're maintaining their version, and they probably are stuck doing that pretty much forever. And lastly, Mozilla is heading toward opt-in activation of browser plugins, which I think is just all good news. What is that? This, Isn't it already? I mean, don't you have to install them? Uh, no, um, many of these things are, you know, in the browser or they'll be, um, no, um, I'm sorry, I, did, I, I, I wasn't clear, per site, that is site-specific ah. permissions. So essentially moving some of the technology that, we're, that we have known and loved from NoScript into the native Mozilla platform, uh, the, it's in beta in version 14 of of Firefox, and they're targeting it for release in version 16. And and the and what they're saying is that you know so many exploits are or being caused by obsolete plugins that they are wow. in, a, in a very much the same way that Chrome is. They're becoming much more proactive about you know they've they've got their browser secured largely. Um, and now they're saying, okay, well, we've got to secure the things that run in the browser. So this this would be, you know, and well, okay, so th these these would be site specific, enforced by the browser. So you would tell it when you want to run plugins by site, and the browser, the Firefox, would remember that. I think that's just all good, and. As I'm reading this, I'm thinking, okay, I mean, this makes sense because there there isn't just one type of person on the Internet. I know that many people will be using IE and IE will just run everything, but there are many people who care more about security. Um, and you know, I'm just comforted by having to enable scripting. I'll go to a page and it'll be blank and I'll think, okay, you know, I do want to see what this page has. So I, for me, it's a, a quick right-click, and I often just enable it temporarily unless it's something that I know I'm coming back to, and then the page loads and, and everything's fine. So I, I like the control. Um, I've, I'm knock on wood, have never had anything crawl into my machine. Uh, I don't, you know, surf promiscuously all over the Internet, so I'm not a, a, a typical target for this kind of stuff. But still... Um, I'm I'm glad to have my guard up, and I, I fully respect that not everyone is as cautious as I and 
probably many of the podcast listeners are, you know, there are solutions for them too. So if they, we're not just in a one-size-fits-all world anymore relative to Internet uh, security. Um, and lastly, um, this is only tangentially related to security. I have it under my uh, miscellaneous category, but I just thought I'd mention it. An interesting facility coming to Facebook called Pipe, P-I-P-E, from some uh, a small German team. This uses something that uh, Adobe has in Adobe Air called uh, Adobe Real-Time Media Flow Protocol. And this is a very simple, encrypted, peer-to-peer file sharing for Facebook users. And it's like feature sparse, which is actually why I like it. It's if two people are like on the phone or, or talking or both on Facebook, uh, it's a tiny app that you can add to Facebook called Pipe. And it simply allows you to drop a file into the pipe and it comes out the other end. And that's all it does. It doesn't use pipes servers because it is truly peer to peer. The real time media flow protocol solves the, the NAT traversal stuff. And it's peer to peer in the same way that Skype is. And it's powerfully encrypted. I think it's AES 128, if I remember. And it's not Dropbox. It doesn't do storage in the cloud or synchronization among multiple machines. It's just a pipe. And so you can, and you don't need to friend other people to use it as other systems do. It's just a pipe. So if, if in any situation someone's on Facebook and they want to, oh, and it's got a size of a gig limit because it uses the browser's cache. So it's whatever you drop in is going, it's a browser-to-browser technology. So you're limited. You just can't send massive things, but my goodness, a gig. So, you know, I mean, that's going to take a while to transfer anyway. But as a super, super simple, clean means of moving files between Facebook users, I think it's going to be popular. I love the fact that it's that simple to use. You just drop it in and it comes out the other end. It's a pipe. Uh, very nice. Yahoo has yeah. another product called Yahoo Pipes, but that's not the same. Not Facebook. Oh, okay. Um, this is Facebook Pipes. Facebook. Yes, it's just ah. Facebook to Facebook users. Oh, interesting. And, 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 and so no client to install. It's a little Facebook app. Very small, very lightweight. Huh. And it just allows, I mean, it's like, you know, your mom could use it because it's simple. Interesting. And I got a nice note from someone named Ray, who maybe didn't give me his last name because he didn't pay for Spinrite, apparently. Um, but it saved his life. And he said, maybe literally. So um, I guess I'll, I'll say, Ray, we're, we're, maybe you'll buy Spinrite at some point. In the meantime, I thank you for sharing the story. He said, this life-saving story. He said, so I decided to reinstall Windows on my computer for the sake of speeding it up which, you know, is a good idea. I do that every few years. But, of course, I had all kinds of things to be backed up. So instead of just burning a few DVDs or borrowing an external hard drive, I decided to transfer it through my network onto my other computer. 
a computer I've had for about six years. Everything transfers over, and I start my reinstall of Windows on the first machine. When the time came to transfer it all back to my main computer, something went wrong. All but about five files did not transfer over. So, wow, all but about five files did not transfer over. The first time I read this this morning, I thought he said... All but five. Only, fi only five didn't transfer. Didn't. <laughs> yeah. So, yikes. So, he only got five. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, just a bunch of unable-to-access drive errors. At this point, I'm thinking, oh, great. I guess I'm going to lose some stuff. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. so. Yeah. <laughs> so I tried to restart the computer, and this must be the second computer that received this archive, and nothing at all. The hard drive cannot be read to boot. Right about this time is when, I, when my, thought my pr thought process went from Oh, great, to, oh, Lord, please protect me. My <laughs> wife is going to kill me. It had occurred to me that all of my wedding pictures were part of those files. So, lucky me, I knew someone who owned Spinrite. I called him immediately and got his copy and ran it. The drive was in very, he has in caps, bad shape. So it took approximately two weeks of chugging away, but Spinrite finally recovered everything, he has in all caps, on the hard drive. I lost some music that never successfully made the initial transfer, so that wasn't Spinrite's fault. I'm going to appreciate Spinrite for the rest of my life because of this. Also, the next day, I purchased Carbonite. <laughs> so Good. this can't happen again. Good man. <laughs> Thank you, Steve, for creating the greatest product in the history of spinning discs. And thank you, Ray. I'm glad Spinrite worked for you. Uh, thank your friend who hopefully was an owner, and maybe someday you'll become one too. In the meantime, all of our listeners know that Spinrite can get the job done. It sure so does. That's I'm nice. For that. We're going to talk about flame, flame on some two, some Ooh. two big revelations. Uh, Goosebump raising, yeah. Yes. Oh boy, oh, I love this stuff. It's uh, somebody's going to write the novel about flame. I can't wait. Before we uh, get to that, though, can I talk a little bit about Squarespace.com, the secret behind an exceptional website? Let me tell you, uh, we use Squarespace for our inside twit website. One of the reasons we like it so much and we use it is because you cannot bring a Squarespace site down. It's the best hosting out there. But it's more than just hosting. It's also the best content management software. So the website gets out of the way. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about security. It just does its job giving you the chance to post your content, whether you're a photographer using one of their beautiful photo gallery templates, or a writer using those gorgeous you know, writing templates. A lot of photographers, this, these are all photographers, uh, here using Squarespace. And one of the things, you know, if you're using Squarespace to show off your stuff, you don't want it to look like somebody else's site. And that's what's so cool about Squarespace. Every Squarespace site looks completely different. Partly because they've got so many templates, so many design tools. And of course, if you know CSS, you can really go hog wild with it. I just, I think Squarespace is just the place you should go right now to look at 
creating your site. And they make it about as easy as could be because you see that big green try it free button at squarespace.com? That, they're serious. Try it free. All you need is an, your name, your email, a name for your site, and a password. You can uncheck the stay in touch box. You won't even get any email. Although I would because you get lots of tips and features and stuff. They also have fantastic workshops. They're very dedicated towards their users using Squarespace as effectively as possible. These free workshops are live webinars that you can attend as a Squarespace customer. Would you please give it a try for me? It's absolutely free. All you have to do is click that green button. But I will tell you, if you decide you like it, that site you designed with a free uh, trial, you can you can keep it around for as little as $8 a month. Or, and I think this is the best deal, for $16 a month billed annually, unlimited pages, unlimited bandwidth, unlimited storage. I mean, for a podcaster, if they'd had this when Twit started, there'd be no question in my mind this would be what I'd use. Unlimited bandwidth, kids. Look, you got to try it. Squarespace.com. If you decide to buy, offer code SECURITYNOW6 because it's the month of June. So we, we, just so you know, if you're listening to this ad, you know, maybe you're listening to secure, old, old episode of Security Now and it's July, use, use Security Now 7, right? But for now, Security Now 6, that way uh, you can get 10% off your first purchase. And if it's an annual purchase, that's going to be a significant savings. And anybody who buys an annual plan at Squarespace gets free domain registration. So you can come up with a cool name. And they'll do all the hookup, all the wiring, which is very nice. Makes it a lot easier for you. Squarespace.com. Offer code security now. Just take a look at it. Give it a try. You'll be impressed, I think. The best hosting and the best software for your next website at squarespace.com. Flame. Flame on. <laughs> so uh, Flame or Flamer actually has a lot of different names. We'll call it Flame for the time being. Is yeah, that is seems impressive. to be the... It's the, Well, yes, it's beyond impressive. As we know from the last couple of weeks that we've been discussing it, it is, it, you know, 20 megabytes. It's 10 times the size of Stuxnet and Dooku. And what we believed... Last week, what I said from what we believed turns out to be wrong. The, um, we have some revelations oh. mm. this week. Um, Alex Kaspersky um, blogged about a discovery which they have made since we last talked about it. And he said, back to Stuxnet, the missing link. Ooh. He said... Now, we Two know Stuxnet was, Stuxnet was developed by the U.S. and Israel. Uh, exactly. And they said, and so Alex wrote, Two weeks ago, when we announced the discovery of the Flame malware, we said that we saw no strong similarity between its code and programming style with that of what they're calling the tilded, T-I-L-D-E-D, platform, which Stuxnet and Dooku are based on. So this tilded platform is the is the common derivative from Stuxnet and Dooku. Flame and tilded are completely different projects based on different architectures and each with their own distinct characteristics. For instance, Flame never uses system drivers, while Stuxnet and Dooku's main method of loading modules for execution is via a kernel driver. Hmm. But 
It turns out we were wrong. Wrong in that we believed Flame and Stuxnet were two unrelated projects. Mm. Our research unearthed some previously unknown facts that completely transform the current view of how Stuxnet was created and its link with Flame. So to go back a little bit, we covered this extensively when it was happening. There were three main variants of Stuxnet. There was a one that was built, the first one, in June 2009. And then there were two others in March and April of 2010. And the, the middle one, the March 2010, evidenced the most penetrations... And it was, because it was so prevalent, the one that was first detected in June of 2010. Can you believe it? It's been two years, Leo. That's <laughs> bizarre. Where did time go? Yeah. Okay, so Alex says, despite the fact that Stuxnet has been the subject of, in, and this is so cool, despite the fact that Stuxnet has been the subject of in-depth analysis by numerous companies and experts, and lots has been written about its structure. For some reason, the mysterious Resource 207 from 2009 went largely unnoticed. So that's something called Resource 207 that was in Stuxnet from 2009. That is the June 2009 Stuxnet, the first one. But it turns out that this is the missing link between Flame and Stuxnet, two otherwise seemingly completely unrelated projects. In October of 2010, okay, so October of 2010, which was after the discovery of Stuxnet. So June 2010 was when the March 2010 version was discovered. In October of 2010, our automatic system received a sample from the wild. It analyzed, that is of something, that they didn't know what. It analyzed the file thoroughly and classified it as a new Stuxnet variant, worm.win32.stuxnet.s. With Stuxnet being such a big thing, we looked at the sample to see what it was. Sadly, it didn't look like Stuxnet at all. It was quite different. So we decided to rename it to Taki, T-O-C-Y dot A, and thought, silly automatic system. You know, it misclassified it. When Flame was discovered in 2012, we started looking for older samples of Flame that we might have received and not recognized. Between samples that looked almost identical to Flame, we found Taki, this T-O-C-Y dot A. Hmm. Going through the sample processing system logs... Back from t October 2010, we noticed it was originally classified as Stuxnet. We thought, how is it possible? Why did the system think that this flame sample, 
which we now knew was flame, was related to Stuxnet. Checking the logs, we discovered that the TOCY.A, which they renamed, which their system originally identified as Stuxnet, and this that we discovered that the TOCY.A, an early module of Flame, was actually similar to Resource 207 from Stuxnet. It was actually so similar that it made our automatic system classify that at the time unknown flame worm as Stuxnet. As it turned out, TOCY.A was similar to Stuxnet alone and to no other sample from our collection. This is how we discovered the incredible link between Flame and Stuxnet. So, this resource 207 is an encrypted DLL containing what they refer to as a PE. PE is the acronym for Portable Executable, which is the Windows format uh, for executable files, which is 351K in size. Resource 207 from Stuxnet is a Flame plugin. And they said actually a Proto-Flame plugin. So Stuxnet's resources actually contain a flame platform component, meaning that a week ago, we didn't think flame and Stuxnet were from the same source, from the same people, from the same team in any way related. Now we know they are. Once they believed that, and because they're, they're becoming increasingly familiar with Flame and already knew Stuxnet so well, they began looking for similarities, which they hadn't been searching for, and they began to find them. Um, they refer to something as, they, they refer to mutex names. A mutex is a, is a, a sort of a fundamental... It's, it's what's called a synchronization object in coding. It stands for, mute, uh, for mutual exclusion. Um, the idea is that different threads running in either the same process, that is the same program, or different processes may need to, to coordinate their access. Say that they shared a database and you'd need some way of them not both reading a record from the database, making different changes, and then writing them back because the last one to write it back would overwrite the changes the other one made. So you use something like a mutex or a semaphore um, to, to synchronize the execution of these threads. Well, when the, when the, when the, the threads are in the same process, they're able just to share the handle of the mutex because they would, bo- they would both be able to know it. But when the threads are in separate processes, because you've got inter-process isolation, which is a key for the security of our systems, there's no way for two different threads to, to know the handle of something that they need to share unless you give it a name. 
So what's done in Windows is that these that mutexes are named, and essentially the first thread to create the mutex or open it use, uses the name, and if it doesn't already exist, it's created in the system, and that thread is given a handle that it can use to access it. And then later, if some other process creates the same mutex with the same name, it, it gets a, a return code saying, ah, oh, that already exists. Here's your handle to it. And so it's a way, by using a common, a, a name that they both know, it's a way of synchronizing these things within the system that you wouldn't normally have access to due to, to process separation. Well, both Flame and Stuxnet use impo- improbably named mutexes. TH underscore pool underscore SHD underscore PQOMGMN underscore parent uh, and then a um, an, uh, uh, percent sign D. So that's probably that's probably a, a, a short uh, a printf for, date, for yeah. a, a date or, or yeah. a decimal number. Right. And then S-Y-N-C-M-T-X as an example. Well, there's, you know, there's no way that's a coincidence right. that they both had that. And then some, some similar things. They both share the same string decryption algorithm, which is unique to them. They both mangle class names in the same way. Um, they both have similar naming conventions. Um, in Stuxnet, there is a temp file created named dat3a.temp, which is placed somewhere. And that's and when, when Stuxnet infects a system, it creates that file so that when other instances of Stuxnet start up, they check to see if that file exists, and if so, they know Stuxnet is already here. Well, Flame, okay, so that was, again, dat3a.temp. Flame uses dat3c.temp. So what they've found is by looking closely at this code, there are they now understand they have common roots and they know that there was a source code level relationship between these groups or teams or maybe just one group because this this secret resource 207 that just was part of Stuxnet remember that it was there in the in the first release of Stuxnet that was found in June 09. But the functionality of resource 207 that exists in Flame today, it was migrated into other modules of Stuxnet in the March and April 2010 versions. To do that, you pretty much need the source code. Hmm. You, you take the source code and you say, okay, we're not going to have it we're in resource 207 we're going to move those functions around into you know into other places so um so it's very clear now that that there was we don't we don't know the details of common authorship 
but we believed a week ago there was no relationship. Now we know there absolutely unequivocally was, you know, probably the same contractor, same, same author, the same, the same author, the same group. In wow. fact, there was some note in Alex's blog where he, because I was thinking about myself and coding style, they have the same coding style. Yeah. And yeah. that's And that's very distinctive. You can, it really is yes. unique. Yes. I was thinking about that with myself. I know if I looked at my own assembly code in, you know, like a, 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 a reverse, a, a, a disassembly of my binaries, I could just see this is my, this is me. This is the way I do things. And if, and for this kind of low level stuff, it had to be written in assembler mm -hmm. because the compiler would tend to fuzz that, you know, the compiler, you know, things come out looking all kind of the generic from a compiler. So you could identify the compiler that produced the code, but not the author who produced the code because that, that level of translation you, it, it, it was kind of obfuscates blur. it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it blurs it. But if I looked at my disassembly, it's like, oh, I wrote that. Right. I know, there's no right. question. And so that's what they're seeing. They're seeing a style of coding at the assembly level that, that this stuff, at least part, parts of this had to be created in where it's like, oh, they use the same, just the same, same fingerprint, same coding style and, you know, there's an infinite number of those at that level. So, you know, yes, it, these are all the same, um, you know, group who put this together, which is amazing. Now, there's more. There's more. Um, to pull off this signed certificate attack, what we now understand is this wasn't a matter of simply getting a certificate, like having it issued, because that wouldn't work. What had to happen was something we talked about years ago. Um, we, we covered a brilliant cryptographer named Mark Stevens, who was involved, and you'll remember this, Leo, because I do, um, in in creating a fraudulent certificate authority for the rapid SSL mm. authority. They, and you may remember they used 200 PlayStation 3s, right, right. a wall of these things. And, and what they did was that the, 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 the need was to, to create a, New certificate, a different certificate with a a different common name. The common name is the thing that you're protecting, essentially. Like, you know, grc.com is the common name for our SSL certificates. So I prove to VeriSign that I am grc.com. I provide them with my public key, which they sign to assert that they have verified that that I'm grc.com and and that's then you know my certificate so so spoofing a certificate means changing the common name 
Well, these things are all fingerprinted. The certificates are fingerprinted using message digests, which is what MD of MD5 stands for. And as we said earlier, Microsoft was using MD5 until last year, despite the fact that it's been chipped away at over the years. I mean, I think it was in 07, so five years ago, that you and I talked about, we did a podcast <laughs> on cracking MD5. Right, on, right. On, I remember on, that. On, yeah, Mark's wall of 200 PS3s mm-hmm, mm-hmm. all using their high-power GPUs. Now, the reason that was necessary was that we're talking about a a what's called a chosen prefix attack on a message digest. The idea being that that as the digest goes along processing a file that it's creating a fingerprint for, it's evolving a state. It maintains a bunch of memory and has a bunch of of, of static con, um, static constants, and it's you're 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 taking new data from the file and munging it in different way, so that the the all of the history of the file is mixed in with the new data and the constants in sort of an evolving fashion. So. The idea is that if you can, if you can, if you're incredibly clever, you can design some changes um, as a prefix such that parts that you don't control of the file will still end up giving you the result you want. And so the idea is that you you want to you want to change part of the certificate in your way yet still have it be signed by someone you trust even though they never signed it meaning that and remember that there that when i say the word signature signing means that 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 the that they have that they that they've used their private key to encrypt the result of the hash. And so you verify it by using their public key. Well, that means since you don't, you never get their private key, that means you've got to make the hash come out the same. So if the hash comes out the same, they signed the other hash for the valid certificate. You've made, you've managed to create a your own certificate with the same hash so their signature still applies so the problem is that these certificates are serialized and they're time stamped and so if 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 our listeners who remember this podcast will remember the the challenge was there they had to submit a certificate request at a precise instant <laughs> in order to get a pre-known time stamp wow. and a known serial number they probably did it in the wee hours of the morning when in the less time traffic. zone yeah when there's yeah. less traffic so the serial numbers would be advancing less slowly and they so they like they they said okay at this point in time the serial number is probably going to be this 
when the certificate is issued, that'll be at exactly this instant. They then use their PS3 wall to to crunch ahead and figure out what prefix they needed in order to synthesize their certificate signing request, the CSR file, which they then submitted at the precise instant in order to get the the authority to sign it. So that was what Mark did in 07. What Mark realized, and he was involved in this, when it became clear that an MD5 collision attack was employed, he said, hey, was, you know, what did they do? How was this used? Um, he, uh, um, I'm trying to find, he, okay, so what Mark said was, of this is, most interestingly, the results, oh, and, and he used his own proprietary forensic tools to reverse engineer the the certificate that was used by Flame to authenticate its code. And he said, most interestingly, the results of our analysis have shown that not our published chosen prefix collision attack was used, but an entirely new and unknown variant. This has led to our conclusion that the design of flame is partly based on world-class cryptanalysis. Isn't, isn't that something? Further research will be conducted to reconstruct the entire chosen prefixed collision attack, which was newly devised for flame. And Matthew Green, a professor specializing in cryptography in the computer science department of Johns Hopkins University, said it's not a garden variety. <laughs> he says it's not a garden variety collision attack, as if there is such a thing. I mean, what I just described, you know, is hardly garden variety. But at this level, the the, the world's preeminent cryptographers are saying this is not a garden variety collision attack or just an implementation of any previous MD5 collision papers, which would be difficult enough. There were mathematicians doing new science to make flame possible. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> wow. Yo. Wow. Oh, yeah. That's just mind-boggling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... Yeah. So they so the world class mathematicians working on this thing. This is NSA. Is that right? Yeah, this is NSA. This is not subcontractors. This is not outside. I mean, this is I mean, maybe Israel, maybe, you know, uh but I mean, this is Sounds like the NSA. <laughs> I have really to say. Is. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah. Golly. Uh I got goosebumps again. Yeah. Just idea. And that's pretty cool. Based on based on their analysis, they're saying that this would this was probably 
$200,000 worth of just pure Jeez. compute time, just just computation time. That, that's what it would cost wow. to, do, to do the computation. And the, and the same sort of collision process would have been required. They believe, for, due to reasons of the, the, the specifics, that the window would have been about 100 times smaller for this versus what was done in 07. So Mark was saying this was orders, two orders of two decimal orders of magnitude more difficult, which it would have increased the amount, the, the computational complexity associated with synthesizing this cert in order to make it happen. I mean, they're, 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 these guys are just like, they're stunned that, that <laughs> this was done without them. This was not done in the academic community. This was done secretly in a cyber war, a cyber war uh, uh, setting. <laughs> Very interesting. Yep. Well, Steve Gibson, you have once again blown my mind. Flame flames on. Yeah. Uh, so it looks pretty much like it was, well, since Stuxnet was, uh, we now, I think we now can safely say for sure, an Israeli-U.S. joint effort. Well, part yeah, of, I part remember. Of, uh, that... Operation Olympic Games. Yep, Olympic Games, and uh, I, I've been w watching the political side. And of course, the, the White House is not happy that this information leaked. They're, you know, on one hand, some people are saying, "Well, doesn't this make Barack look like he's tough on 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 you know cyber war?" And it's like, "Yeah, but it shouldn't have leaked." And and reportedly, the president is not happy that this story got written. But well, uh, it's, sorry, I mean, come yeah. on. It's true. People are paying a lot of attention to this. And, yep. uh, yeah, good luck <laughs> keeping it a secret. <laughs> it is interesting, Leo, that, that, that there is a level, I mean, this kind of level, this, this goes way beyond script kitties and, you know, metasploit uh, turnkey uh, exploit packages. This is, this is world-class espionage. And, boy, can you imagine the chagrin of the people who designed it when this got discovered it's like oh well the big mistake was that it it leaked out it was it was it was only supposed to be used in you know in constrained circumstances and it's leaked out and that's really the big mistake uh if you want to be upset about something uh be upset about that but the truth is i think that's a valuable lesson that every uh, security researcher knows very well it's very hard to contain these things. Much harder than a bioweapon. Yeah, it was it was used in a targeted fashion, thus the concentration of its being been found, you know, to a much higher degree in Iran and right. in the Middle East right. than elsewhere. So it wasn't just it wasn't, you know, flow I mean Stuxnet was found, you know, in people's air conditioners, so in you know, in their <laughs> homes. So Flame, flame was at least more tightly targeted than that. So that's good. Steve Gibson is the best. You could find his work online, grc.com. That's where Spinrite is, world's best hard drive maintenance utility. Dude, if you use it, buy it. And a lot of free stuff that you don't have to buy and a lot of research and all sorts of things at grc.com. Not to mention show notes, 16 kilobit audio versions, and even transcriptions of each and every one of this program, all 357 episodes 
at grc.com. Now, if you want the video or the higher quality audio, we've got that at twit.tv, and you can always subscribe. Do you, is the 16 kilobit version a podcast? Did we ever make it a, you know, no. like a downloadable podcast? I wonder if there's no. a... Let me know if there's a demand for that, folks, and uh, we can turn that into a, a subscribable show. Um, never even thought I, have, I haven't even checked my stats for, for quite a while. Yeah. That's a part of my... Uh, revamping that I'm that I'm working on and uh-huh. do not forget please uh grc.com slash feedback next week's episode is a Q&A and I'd love to hear what questions our listeners have um we'll address them good Steve's uh, Twitter is at sggrc and uh we do this show every Wednesday 11 a.m pacific 2 p.m eastern so you can always watch live we like it when you do and we can see the chat room and all that um that's 1800 UTC on twit.tv Thanks, Steve. We'll see you next Wednesday. Oh, programming note: the uh, two, three weeks from now is the Fourth of July, so we will let you know when we're gonna. We're not going to record on the Fourth of July. The whole place is shut down for fireworks. Except, I think OMG Chad is going to do a Minecraft marathon <laughs> on the Fourth of July. He's going to launch his new Minecraft show then. So stay tuned for that. But no security now, and we'll let you know when we what the new schedule uh, is going to be. Thanks, Great. Steve. Thanks, Leo. Take care. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Security Now.